This morning we'll be reading from the book of Hebrews in the first chapter, starting with the first verse. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the word of the Lord. His name was Antonios, and he sat in a deteriorating second-story apartment located in a slum on the slope of a hill in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn walls outside, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on a makeshift table. The room turned dark with the coming storm, and Antonios lit a small lamp against the gloom, but When the light came on, the roaches materialized, scampering into the dark safety of cracks in the walls. In the next apartment, a baby cried and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and then faded and an unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere in the middle of this muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven under the sharp orders from their commander. Antonio sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly man named Brutus, once again turned the task of picking fruit, pricing it and the vegetables into an opportunity to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as the gnats darting to and from the shop in that pungent air, and Brutus was big and obnoxious and cruel, and Antonios cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment, and each time, instead, he turned the other cheek. And what it returned in kind was a slap on the cheek. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked for the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself. And now, emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall, a scream in the night, meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius's heart racing. He'd been told that the cost of following the Messiah was severe, but somehow his experience was different than he'd expected. You see, in the beginning, he thought it would be all joy, unbroken forever, that he would always feel the presence of God. He'd been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, who would vindicate his new covenant people was at hand, Did not the scripture speak of the Messiah saying that he had put all things under his feet, but the church, his church, had taken a great beating lately and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether or not God was really in control. 
In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. And some, in their disillusionment and doubt, had left the church altogether. Antonios himself had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past few weeks. And his heart had cooled. It had cooled, really, because of the tough times. Antonios' bitterness over his current circumstance was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, though, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement, and a rumor was on the street. The rumor had it that leaders had received a document from somewhere back east. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonios's curiosity was aroused, and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood where the fellowship met. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from their daily labors. The hostess offered some drink, and then the friendly banter began, but dejection held in the room, heavy in the air. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of 70 years plus, finally arrived. Joseph was his name, and he was a bit out of breath, having met with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood before them, smiling before a group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from age. Joseph took a deep breath and explained that he had talked to the other leaders, and they'd allowed him to bring the first reading of a scroll to this house church. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find it quite relevant. And then he unrolled that first parchment and began the reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days... He has spoken to us by His Son. It's a fictitious letter. Creative. But creative along a historical line. Because the church that the author of Hebrews wrote to was in that kind of situation. They were in the midst of persecution, bewilderment, and doubt. Not all, all of them had given up on the faith, but many of them were on their way out the door, thinking that God or this Jesus that they'd served was not who and what they'd expected. We don't know the author of the book of Hebrews, but they did. And they respected him and listened carefully to the letter as it was first read. And what they realized is that this author, this author had a incredible knowledge of what we call the Old Testament scriptures, what they would have called the Hebrew scriptures. He knew it inside and out. And it was clear from this author's writing that he was very well versed in theology. He knew it very well. And what's even more clear, although we don't see it in our reading, is this author had been trained in the skill of Greek rhetoric. For those who read ancient texts and compare this 
writer to those ancient texts, they can see the rhetoric coming through, the cadence, the way the story is told. It would have fascinated the first ears. Their ears would have been wide open listening to the message. You know that we're in a series where I'm preaching on one book, a a setting. Uh, Every Sunday, it's a new book. And this Sunday, it's the whole book of Hebrews. And I've got three things to say. No more, but three main things. The author of the book of Hebrews says, Jesus, the one you worship, is the exact image of God. Jesus, the one you worship, is the perfect high priest. Jesus, the one you worship, is the faithful shepherd of his flock. First, Jesus, the one you worship, is the exact representation of God. They would have known exactly what that meant. It's like a stamp on a coin, which is the exact image of the coin maker. It's like the stamp of an emperor's seal or a king's seal, which is the exact image in the wax of that ring. The writer says Jesus Christ is the exact image of God, the perfect reflection of God himself. But before they might have rushed on and said to themselves, oh, exact image, a copy, something exactly like God, but not God. The author of the book of Hebrews says, I want you to understand exactly what I mean by exact image. I mean more than a stamp. He says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Listen, they would have known very well that all other people in the Old Testament who had a theophany appearance from God ran in terror and in horror because of the absolute overwhelming holiness of God. Remember Moses. Moses, I'm going to show you myself, but you only see the backside like a shadow. I'm going to have to hide you in the cleft of the rock. You can't take my glory, Moses. The author says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He need not hide from God's radiance. He is God's radiance. That's who you worship. This Jesus, he said, is the creator of all things. That designation is reserved for God and God alone. It's never spoken of by the prophets concerning Moses as creator or the angels. It's only God and God alone who's creator of all things. This Jesus, he says, that you worship is creator of all things. And furthermore, something else you know about God. God is not just the creator who wound up the clock and let it go. God is the sustainer of all things. He gives you your life, your breath. Every day of your life is dependent upon the existence of God. And Jesus is the sustainer of all things. The image of God. That's the Jesus you worship. Can I insert? Don't be discouraged. This Jesus is higher than the angels. They're heavenly beings. He's son of God. This Jesus is higher than Moses. That would have been the highest prophet in their imagination. Completely. He was delivering the word of God. He was said in the Old Testament to be the mouthpiece of God. And the author of the book of Hebrews says, it's not like Moses. He's not the mouthpiece of God. He is word of God. His very being 
don't forget who you worship. This whole story, he says, from start to finish, called the Hebrew Scriptures, it's about Jesus. The exact image of God. Furthermore, he says to these 20-some Christians who heard it for the first time, this Jesus that you worship is the perfect, perfect high priest. Now, they would have known the temple inside and out. They would have understood the images that he used speaking about the temple. They would have understood the ornate overlays of gold and silver and copper and all the brass and all the fine things in the temple. They would have understood that at the entrance to the temple, there was a sacrifice place for people to offer their sacrifices. And then the priest went into the holy place and he worshiped God on behalf of the people. And then the high priest and the high priest only once a year entered into the most holy place to make atonement for the people's sins. They would have understood all that. And the author says, you know what that is? It's an image. It's a shadow of an eternal heavenly reality. And when Christ came, He became the high priest who stepped into that eternal reality. He's a high priest like the high priest that you knew because he was human. As a matter of fact, he was so human, he understood you. But he was different. He was a different high priest because this high priest was the eternal high priest and his work on his day of atonement was final and complete and eternal. This high priest actually became the sacrifice. This high priest abolished sin and death in his own body. This high priest is perfect. That's the one you worship. Don't forget it. Early on when he's encouraging these Christians who may be bewildered or frustrated or overcome with their circumstances, he says, I want to remind you about your high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Stop. Maybe I'm more of a cynic than you are. But had the writer of the book of Hebrews put a period at the end of that sentence and not followed it up, I could have been discouraged. Sure, he's a great high priest. Sure, he's sinless. And I'm not. All that does is just puts him further away from the reality that I live every day. He's sinless. I'll never achieve that. But listen to the next words. So, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for us in our time of need. This perfect high priest that you will never be perfect like stood in your place and so you can approach him with absolute confidence that he has already taken care of your sin and your guilt. Enter into the relationship with that high priest. That's who you worship. 
Don't forget it. You also worship the great shepherd. The author doesn't say anything about the great shepherd with quite those words until he gets down to the very end of the book. And it's a benediction that you've heard me use over and over again on communion Sunday. He speaks about that great shepherd. But he does begin by first speaking about faith. Hebrews chapter 11. You know that chapter? It's the chapter that's all about faith. They often call it the hall of faith. It's a list of people who have gone through all kinds of travails and have endured. And it's a list of people who never saw what we see. A list of people, most of which, never saw or knew Jesus Christ. And still were faithful. You know what the point of that is? Those people walked by faith. And the great shepherd walked with them. Because the shepherd always walks with his sheep. He opens that chapter with these words. I'll tell you what faith is, he says. Now faith is being sure of what is hoped for. And confident of what you cannot see. Does that mean there's no doubt? Absolutely not. If you didn't struggle with doubt, you wouldn't be human. But by the grace of God, you've been given enough faith to hope for the reality that you've heard about and to have enough confidence just to walk towards that hope. That, says the book of Hebrews, is faith. And my friends, says the author, there's a whole bunch of people who have walked through a whole lot of life, sometimes much worse than yours, and they've hung on securely to whatever little faith they have. By the way, it's not about the amount of faith. It's about the object of your faith. Not whether you have enough, but whether your faith is in Jesus Christ. This great shepherd, he actually will let you walk through trials. <laughs> trials that seem like they're going to beat you up because he knows it's for your good. One occasion the author says, call it discipline if you like. You know, every father disciplines his child. He disciplines them for a reason. And God sometimes disciplines us. But that great shepherd walks with us. He'll discipline you. And, and with that shepherd's rod, <laughs> you can remember these images from John and other places. He'll take that rod, that staff, and pull you back on course and tell you, walk with me. Maybe a little bit of an aside, kind of a silly aside. Remember um, directions before GPS? I mean, none of you who are 18 do, but the rest of us do. Uh, directions before GPS was a map that you had in your lap as you were driving. That was even worse than texting on a cell phone, looking at a map and driving, but we did it. And you would try to find your way to the destination, and it seemed inevitably, as you got closer, it became more complex. Because when you got really close, the map wasn't that helpful and you had some directions scrawled down on a piece of paper that Aunt Matilda had given you on the phone. 
and you're looking for this place and you can't find it. And maybe the map's out of date. Maybe the road doesn't even exist anymore and you're frustrated. And finally, out of frustration and because your spouse is nagging you, you stop at a corner gas station and ask directions, right? And Freddie Brown says, yeah, it's just down that way a little ways. Go down there and take a left that light pole and then take another right. Keep going. Go through a forest, come out over there, and you'll find this tree, this big tree. It's an oak tree. Take it right there, and it's going to become a dead-end road, and it's a dirt road, and you can make it. Just go that way. And I'm thinking, I've done so many times, I can't possibly remember all those stupid directions. And I get back in the car, and my wife says, you know where we're going? Yep, know right where we're going. <laughs> so off we go. Just go that way, he says. What I'm saying is this. That's not how Jesus does it. He doesn't say, there it is, go that way. He said, there it is, walk with me. I'm a guide, not a map. I'm not the guy at the gas station who tells you where to go. I'm the great shepherd who's going to lead you. And you're going to get off track, and I'll pull you back up. And I'll set you on the right path. And I'm always going to be there. Go with me. You know, the great shepherd is also our heavenly father. We use lots of images to speak about God and Jesus Christ. And every image breaks down because not every earthly father is a very good example of a father. But God calls himself our Heavenly Father. And on occasion, you remember, if you're like me, being a father. And you remember when you were a young father and all the mistakes that you made. I think we had to have a Sunday school class, a Sunday school class called Stupid Mistakes That Parents Make. And all we should do is just share all the dumb things we've done and the stupid mistake. It could be cathartic, really, it could. It could be really good for us because we've all been there. And I can remember a number of them, and they just haunt me. Um, this one doesn't haunt me as much as it reminds me of who I'm not. When, when my son David was only eight years old, we were in Cub Scouts in New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, I had no idea what Cub Scouts was about. I'd never been a Cub Scout. And apparently at a particular time in Cub Scouts at that age, uh, you enter a thing called the Pinewood Derby. Yeah, you know about that, right? So it's this little rectangular block of wood that you get in a package, and it's got some wheels in it that you tap into these little places they've carved out in, the, in this block of wood and, and you run this thing down a track and you're supposed to make something of it. And I'm in this group with all these guys who are way out ahead of me in terms of Pinewood Derby. They've done it before. Their grandfather and their great-grandfather did it. They know exactly how to do it. And what's further, they're like engineers or something, you know. It's, you know those kind of people in those Boy Scout groups, right? And, you know, you're trying to teach your son how to tie a knot, and you're going, the engineer's over there tying it with his left foot. It's it's like, you guys know too much. You know how to figure things out too much. So they just would take that car, and their eyes would light up. Man, we're going to make this thing an Indy race car. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a disaster. (laughs) My kid is going to be annihilated. So self-protection kicks in. And I say to him, hey, bud, I, I got to remind you something. These guys have been at this a long time. They're really good at it. I know these guys, and they know what they're doing. And we've never done this, so let's keep our expectations low, right? 
we can't expect to do that well. We're just going to give it, you know, a good try. And he's just looking at me for a brown. He's shaking his head. He wants to hear something else. And he said, I, I don't like that, Dad. I don't like that. I said, what do you mean? He said, we're going to do good. I said, okay. I said, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. This was another form of self-protection. <laughs> I said, I'm going to take that block of wood and I'm going to shave it down so it's pretty aerodynamic and then I'm going to give it to you. And Dave, I want to tell you something. Some of those other dads, they're doing all the work. Those kids are not involved in the process. You're going to do the work, bud. And when you do the work and you do whatever you're going to do on the racetrack, it's going to be yours. And he said, okay. So I shaved it down into a wedge. Didn't know what I was doing. And then I handed him his little hammer. I still have it. And with his little hands, he took that wheel and he tapped it into the groove all the way around all four wheels. And then he went into his bedroom and he got out his little paint kit, you know, that he would color and paint with. And he, he drew a racing stripe right down the middle of it. Not a single stripe was straight. It was just like wiggly all the way. It was the most hideous looking car you've ever seen in your life. And then, and then he put an eight on it because he was eight years old. So that was the number of his car. Tapped in the wheels and I looked at it and I thought, we really are in trouble. This car was resting on three wheels. One wheel wasn't even touching at all. So we go to the race, which is at the Eli Whitney barn. Eli Whitney actually built this barn in New Haven. We go to this race, and it's huge. I mean, I don't know what these people are up to, but they love Pinewood Derby, and they actually have grandstands over on the side of where these big tracks are coming down. And my heart's just sinking further and further down. And we get there, and David marches up with his car to the top of the thing, and it's like 10 cars across. And and the guy flips the switch, and I'm one of the dads down at the bottom receiving the cars and marking on the bottom of the car in terms of a heat, which, you know, did they make it, did they not, all this kind of stuff. Dude flips the switch, David's car comes screaming down the track. I mean, it's like two car lengths ahead of everybody else. And I'm thinking, what in the world happened? By the way, on the way in, when I was checking in, I was checking the car in for... I don't know, speculations or something. It's specs. And, it, and the guy looked at it and he said, where's your weights? I said, weights? What weights? He said, you need some weights on this car. It's never going to go down the track very fast. I said, I don't have any weights. He said, well, here, I got a bunch of pennies for people like you and some glue. So he gave me the glue and the pennies and I just stabbed them on the bottom part of the car to give it a little bit of weight, just as many as I could get on. David's car was just killing him. The next heat, he was still out in front. The third heat, he's still out in the front. Fourth heat, he's still out in the front. There's a lot of cars there. This little kid wins the entire race with his car resting on three wheels. <laughs> so the best part of the story is that I had a friend who's a PhD student in uh, New Testament at the time, and he's sitting over in the grandstand. And every time David would finish his heat, he would run down and grab his car, hold it up in the air, and go running by the grandstand, saying something. And my friend said, hey, Bob, do you know what he was saying when he would run by? I said, no. He said he would run by and say, and my dad said we can never win. Are you serious? Now, look, I didn't really say that. But that's how he took it. And what I want to say is when the author of Hebrews 
writes about the race of life, which is a marathon and not a sprint. Jesus is not saying, keep your expectations low, kid. You're not going to make it. He's saying you can do it. Run hard. Strengthen those feeble legs. And beyond that, I want to tell you something. I know the reason you can do it. Because I did it. And you're mine. And I am with you. And you're going to cross that finish line. That's Jesus. I've got a flurry of whenevers for you as you leave. Whenever life's overwhelming and you feel like giving up, don't. Strengthen your legs with the encouragement that comes from Jesus who finished ahead of you. When you've done your best and your best doesn't seem to be good enough, remember this. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. He takes your best efforts and perfects it. So keep going. Whenever you've fallen again, once again to that sin that just beats you up and you're completely debilitated and you want to make yourself the sacrificial animal because you can't figure out what to do, don't. Remember this. Jesus made the once for all sacrifice for you. Just get back up and keep walking with Him. And whenever you're standing alone for right and nobody's standing with you, remember Jesus is with you and He was there. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Just absolutely beat up by life. Standing for what was right. Knowing that he had to do the will of God, but begging not to have to do it. And where were his faithful disciples? Asleep. He was alone in his loneliness. And in his doubt. Do I have to do this, Father? When you're there, he's there with you. Because he's been there. When you're discouraged, well about life, not just about yourself, that everything's going wrong. That this world is just getting worse and worse. Just remember there's an eternal city. God has said it will be. Its builder and its maker is our Lord. And eventually you will inherit that city. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author perfecter and completer of your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because as Paul said, probably not the author of the book of Hebrews, the one who's called you is faithful. And he is going to do it. In spite of you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, being our Redeemer, our Lord, and our Great Shepherd. You never leave us or forsake us. 
Nothing overwhelms you, Lord. Sometimes we think maybe our sin is too much. (laughs) And you couldn't possibly forgive, but that's not true. Sometimes we think our faith is too weak. But that's not true. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with doubt that it feels like we have no faith and we will fall permanently. But that's not true. Because you have called us. You have chosen us. And you will complete your good work within us. You will perfect us. Tomorrow, Lord, may that just be with us everywhere we go. May we feel the presence of that great shepherd, that high priest, that exact image of God in our lives. And we'll thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.